morning, everyone. Tim, thank you very much for leading us this week, stepping up to, to do that. Uh, we, we recognize as pastors, we're going to take a rotation and lead the congregation in song. So this week was okay because it's Tim, and next week's okay because it's Jesus, but the wheels are going to fall off when it's Jordan and my turn. So we just pray God raises up a more sustainable solution. I'm just kidding. We're actually not going to do that. Um, although next week, Jesus will be leading us. But, and do pray that God raises something up. We, we have some good, encouraging uh, possibilities, but we'll see what the Lord does. Um, would you stand with me as we read our passage this morning, Revelation chapter 10? It's been a while since our reading service, and I know some details may be fuzzy, so I want us to read it again. Revelation chapter 10, John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and, and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach, stomach became bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And they have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. 
But after three and a half days, a breath, from, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What are we to make of all of this? A gigantic angel that stands on the sea in the land, seven thunders eating a scroll, measuring a temple, fire-breathing witnesses, a worldwide party. It all seems so, so weird, so inexplicable, so complicated. But that easily happens in the book of Revelation when you lose the forest for the trees. If we get caught up in the individual details, there's no end to the kinds of interpretations we might come up with a passage like this. But if we keep our eye on the overarching story, the overarching vision that, that God, the Lord is giving John for us to see, we are able to make sense of these kinds of passages that seem so inexplicable on their own. Now, if you look in your, your service guides this morning, I've, I've actually put an outline and a title of the sermon. I'm, I'm entitling chapters 10 and 11 of Revelation, The Unstoppable Gospel and the Undying Church, because that's exactly what we just read about. I know it doesn't seem that way, but I'm, think, I'm sure by the time we're done, you'll see it too. Now, I want to give you the context. Remember, it, it, it's been a while since we've been in the flow of, of the book of Revelation, so I want to give you just a bit of the context. Remember, keep in mind that so far, this is, this is the second of two interludes, a scene that's inserted in another scene. We've seen one before. Between the sixth and seventh seals, there was an interlude that involved all of God's people. And here we get, have again, in between the sixth and seventh trumpets, another interlude that's speaking about all of God's people. If you just look at your Bibles with me for a moment, you actually can see these distinct breaks. So as we started the, seventh, the seven seals in Revelation chapter 6, you see that right there? Some of your Bibles may have a sub, subheading. It says the seven seals. And then all of a sudden we, we jump to chapter 7, talking about the 144,000. And then all of a sudden back in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, we see the seventh seal. So there's the six seals. Then you got chapter 7. And then it picks up with seal number 7. We get the same pattern on the seven trumpets. Look at uh, chapter 8 of Revelation, starting in verse 6. You might see the subheading, the seven trumpets, and we looked at this last week. It goes through chapter 6, goes through the entirety of chapter 9, and then all of a sudden we have another interlude. It's the angel and the little scroll and the two witnesses. But then notice in Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15, again we pick up, now the seventh trumpet. So you can see these interludes there are just the way your Bible breaks down. And notice, in both interludes, Revelation chapter 7, it is showing that all God's people, represented by that symbolic number, 144,000, they are sealed and protected by God. So while the seals are cracking open, and, and I don't mean sea animal seals, right? We're talking about seals on a scroll. While those seals are cracking open, God says, my people are protected. And we say that, see the same thing in the second interlude in Revelation 10 and 11. It's showing us that God's people are being protected, but we see something new with the second interlude. But God's people serve a distinct purpose. 
to be his witnesses in the world, in a world that's rebellious and hard-headed and hard, as Ezekiel said, a hard forehead and a hard heart. And they wouldn't listen to the word, but they're to be witnesses to the world. And so by receiving the antagonism and hatred of the world as they are persecuted by the world, which justifies God's judgment against the world, the trumpets being blown. You remember in the vision of the seals, the people of God cry out, Lord, how long will we have to deal with this? How long will evil and injustice reign and your people suffer? Right? We saw that. And we saw in, Re in the seven trumpets that, that the angel goes to the altar and grabs the, the censer, pulls it with incense along with the prayers of the saints, mixes it up, and he just throws the judgment upon the earth. God does not take kindly to his people, to his children, being oppressed and afflicted and persecuted. God is acting and as, the word, as the witness of God's people goes out. Just like Ezekiel, God says, they'll know a prophet's been amongst them, but you need to bring my word to them. Whether or not they hear it or not, that's what you have to do. Well, God has the same command of all his people. And we're seeing that same thing being played out here in Revelation chapter 10 and 11. In other words, friends, this section that we're looking at, chapters 10 and 11, is what God's people... If you are a Christian, you are doing while the trumpets are blaring. Revelation 10 and 11 is telling us what's happening right now in the church age. Now, it might seem like that's not what it's talking about because it's talking about a giant angel and fire-breathing people. So how do you get that? We'll unpack that. What's the main message of this text? I put it in your bulletin there. It's simply this. The gospel will prevail. Because the church is protected. Maybe you get another way. The gospel is unstoppable because the church is undying. And God will do this in three distinct ways. Number one, God will guard his people. Number two, God will empower his people. And then number three, God will take his people home. But in order for us to understand this as the message... We actually have to deal with a couple of interpretive issues here that are popping up in our passage this morning. That is the temple, the time period, and the two witnesses. So we're going to have to deal with those. But before we do that, let's work ourselves through chapter 10 because that's what sets up our scene. Now, there's a lot to cover in chapter 10, as you can imagine, but we're only going to focus on two things. Number one, what the angel says in chapter, in verse 6 and 7, and what John does in verse 10. So let's look at that briefly. What the angel says, look at the very end of verse 6. What he says is, there would be no more delay, but in the days of the trumpet call sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God is going to be fulfilled, just as announced to his servants, the prophets. No more delay. This is it. We've come to the point where the mystery of God is going to be fulfilled. The world is living on borrowed time. Every day you're given is a day that is just one day closer to when everything wraps up. I know it doesn't feel that way for us so often, but that's what the scripture says. Time and time again, if you were here in our series last summer outside when we talked about the work of Christ, that the, the day the Spirit was poured out of the church on Acts chapter 2, they called it the beginning of the last days. Here we are two millennia later. It's probably wrapping up. It could go another two millennia years. We don't know. But this is the last time the tr seventh trumpet will soon blast. In light of this reality, 
God has his servant John act out two parables, much like the prophets in the Old Testament would often do. They would act out parables as a lesson to the world around them. The first parable was the eating of the scroll. The second parable is the measuring of the temple. Very different acts, but communicating very, the very same principles. So that's what the angel says. No more delay. Nothing else stands between now and God's desire to bring all things to fulfillment. That's what the angel says. Now let's look at what John does. Chapter 10, verse 10. It says, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach had turned bitter. It is bittersweet. What, why is this? What, what's going on here? It is sweet because we've just been told God's purposes, God's mystery will be fulfilled. This is sweet. All God's purposes will come to culmination here. But it's also sour because the reality of it is as God's people move out into the world to be his witness just like Ezekiel, they're going to suffer tribulation and persecution because we are in a world that hates him and all those that follow Christ. And so John eats it, and it's that dual reality. It's sweet because God is wrapping things up, but it's sour because it's going to be difficult and hard. And in, John, in, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, John then acts out another parable here, communicating the same bittersweet principle. He's told to measure out the, the temple sanctuary. And so he does that. He measures out the sanctuary. And here's where we're dealing with the first of three interpretive issues that we have to figure out in order to make sense of this passage. The temple, the time period, and the two witnesses. With all three of these things, there's generally two ways to take it. If there are others, but for our purposes, there's, only two way, there's generally two ways you can take them. Either literally, what we're reading here is literally what John is talking about, what God intends, or they're symbolic of some deeper reality. Now, if you've been here for our series, you know the direction I'm going. I believe these are symbolic. And again, I'm just going to say, you don't read history like you read poetry, right? You don't read comic books like you read the news. If you do, your view of reality is going to be really bizarre, right? In the same way, when it comes to the Bible, you don't read the historical portions like they're poetry, and you don't read the poetry as if it's prophecy, because if that's the way you read the Bible... You have a very bizarre view of the Christian faith, right? So it really matters to understand what kind of literature are we reading when we approach God's word. It, it's one book, but if you know anything about the book, how many books are we actually holding here? 66, right? They're not all the same genre. And so the same rules that apply to any form of literature apply to the Bible. It really matters what kind of literature you're reading. And by the way, it's not complicated. It's not like secret knowledge. We, we actually, in our Disciple Makers class, have a class on teaching you how to interpret the Bible. Uh, Tom Munson. Tom, are you here? Are you teaching it? That's the one, right? Yeah, so Pillars of Truth. Tom, when are you teaching that next, Tom? Okay, so... Again, this is a agnostic material. We teach a class, Tom leads it, one of our elders, on how do you interpret scripture. The, the key is you have to be willing to read the Bible for what it is and not for what you want it to be. Oh, that's different. Like it always used to drive me nuts when I was a young Christian when people would read the Bible and they would say, do you know what this means to me? I don't 
care what it means to you. I want to know what does it mean, right? It's not about what it means to me as if it means one thing to me, but it's going to mean something else to Tim, something else to Jonathan there, and something else to everyone. What the, what in the world? What does it mean? And then how do I apply it to my life? It's about what it says, not what I want it to say. So let's look at the temple. There's only really two ways to think about it. If, if it's literal, as I was taught and I believe for many years, and that's basically that there's a, a future temple to, rebuilt, be, to be rebuilt in Israel during the end times. But if it's symbolic, then this is referring to the church, that the Lord's protecting his church for their purpose of being a witness. Now, if John means a literal temple here, then in reality, it means very little to these original Christians because the temple had been destroyed 20 years earlier. And if it's a literal temple of the future, then it still means very little to these Christians or any Christians except for those who live in the very last days. But if it's symbolic of the people of God, the church, then it makes sense why any Christian in any time can get encouragement from these words because it refers to them, which is why John said, or through the Spirit, every time, let he who have ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches for all the churches. Because it's symbolic referring to the people of God, the church. Now let me give you four reasons why this temple is symbolic and not a literal temple. Number one, the New Testament often refers to the people of God as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 2, pivotal passages that talk about the new covenant promise that the people of God are now the temple. God transcends a physical locality and now inhabits his people as they go out into the world. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show that all the Old Testament systems and practices, including the temple, have now been fulfilled in the new covenant promises of Christ and his people. And so when the majority of the New Testament, with the exception of the Gospels, because the temple is still there, there's a little bit of interplay in the Gospels, but the majority of the New Testament, after the Gospels particularly, is always referring to the temple as the people of God. It, it's interpretively odd to all of a sudden switch that now reading as a literal temple. Here's the second reason. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it speaks of God measuring out his people as a means to provide divine protection for them. Again, I taught you that Revelation is not coming up with new doctrines. Rather, it's, it's a big river and all the tributaries, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, they're all pouring into it. And we already see in Zechariah 2, God measures out his people to provide them protection. Zechariah, as you remember, has already played significantly in our study of Revelation. John pulled heavily, heavily from Zechariah 4, explaining the lampstands in Revelation chapter 1. Number 3, Ezekiel chapter 40 and 42, God's building the new temple that flows from it, life, is the immediate context here. And in Ezekiel, he's talking about the Holy Spirit working through the temple, bringing life everywhere it goes. Not a literal building, but his work through the Spirit, the new covenant. Finally, number 4, symbolically... This fits the immediate context that God will protect his people from true danger, true death, and suffering while they suffer persecution from the world. In other words, the inner sanctuary that's spoken of there in chapter 11, 
the, is the true spiritual Israel, the church, is shielded while the outer courts, it's, it's the physical expression of the church, is susceptible to harm. He says, they will be trampled by the nations for 42 months. The significance where I'm going with that is this. The people of God have their salvation, their standing with God secure despite the physical harm they will endure to be a witness for him. It's the same context of the bittersweet scroll. It's the same message here. It's the same message that Ezekiel the prophet got so many years earlier. And this is consistent with the biblical teaching. God never promises to deliver us from our struggles. But he promises to be with us in our struggles. And this leads to the second interpretive issue then. If, if the temple is the people of God, what is this time period? If you're a note taker, you've probably been hearing these. We, we often hear about Three and a half years, three and a half days, uh, 1,260 days, 42 months. They're all referring to the same time period, 42 months. A lunar month being 30 days is three and a half years. That's 1,260 days. They're all referring to the same thing. Or maybe the archaic expression, especially in the book of Daniel, time, times, and half a time, can't see that really well, is three and a half. You see that there? There you go. So time times and half a time is three and a half. All these expressions are referring to the same reality. Now, if you hold the literal view, then this means this is three and a half years of tribulation at the end time. But if it's a symbolic view, which we take it, this is referring to the entirety of the church age where the church carries out its purpose. Again, if it's literal then this means nothing to any Christian except those who live at the final time. If it's symbolic, then it has tremendous application because it means everything we read in Revelation is relevant to all and any time, including our own time. Let me give you four reasons that this time period is symbolic and not literal. Number one, three and a half. If you've been in our study of Revelation, you know that the number seven is significant, actually not just in Revelation, the number seven is significant throughout all of scripture. Last week's reading, we heard of Joshua blowing the trumpets, walking around the city of Jericho for seven days, blowing the seven trumpets. And on the seventh day, they blew them seven times, right? In the very first chapter of the Bible, first two chapters of the Bible, God creates the world in seven days, right? Seven has always been a sign of completion, entirety, totality, uh, maturity, uh, perfection. It has a wide semantic range, but it always means a sense of sufficiency and completion. The idea here of three and a half is that though this is a time of difficulty, it, it's not complete. It will not be the totality. It, it is not the entirety of what you're going to experience. It's not the whole story. It's not short. Like 10 days, remember Revelation 2, the church of Smyrna, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. It's not short, but it's also not the whole thing. It will be significant, but it's not the entire story. Second reason, we see in the Old Testament, Israel's wandering before they were brought into the promised land of God's presence, the land of milk and honey. Israel had 42 encampments. 42 times they stopped and waited on the Lord. Broke camp, followed the Lord again, stopped. You can read that in uh, Numbers chapter 33, verses 5 through 49. That's a pretty big coincidence that 42 times they did that. Some scholars believe that the children of Israel wandered for roughly 42 years in the wilderness. Number three, actually I just changed one. Four, yeah. So number three, 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, the next chapter we'll look at next week, is clearly referring to the church age, and it lists this time period as 1,260 days. Now, why John switches between days, years, months, I actually don't know, but they're all referring to the same period of time. Revelation 12 says the church age is 1,260 days. Clearly, that we've exceeded that, so it can't literally mean 1,260 days. And fourth and finally, the time designation here of three and a half years, the symbolism of that, fits wonderfully with the two witnesses. So, for example, Elijah's ministry of judgment against wicked Israel, according to 1 Kings 17, Luke 4.25, and James 5.17, was for three and a half years, coincidentally lining up with the same kind of concept, which brings us to the last interpretive detail before applying this passage to us, the, 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 the two witnesses, right? So we see there in chapter 11, that it, and this is all flowing together. He's talking about the temple, how many days it's going to be, and then right into the two witnesses. If it's literal, the belief is that this is Moses and Elijah returning bodily for this time period. If it's symbolic, it's talking about the church's purpose to be a witness to the Lord and his word. So let me give you three reasons why these witnesses are symbolic and not literal. Number one, if you're familiar with your Bible, this shouldn't be a surprise. The two witnesses is a clear reference to the, the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 19 that a fact or evidence can only be established upon the evidence of two witnesses. We see the same principle uh, carried out in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 18. The idea being the truthfulness of the testimony, not necessarily the, the identity of the individuals per se. So this is a biblical concept. In order for something to be told as true, you needed at least two witnesses. Jesus and the early church followed the same pattern. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was kind of commissioning his disciples to be his ambassadors, in Luke chapter 10, he sends them out by twos. In the book of Acts, particularly uh, I'm thinking Acts chapter 15, when, when Paul is commissioned, he goes out with Paul and Barnabas. They go out in twos. Secondly, this reference here in verse 4, referring to them as olive trees and lampstands there, we've already seen this, haven't we, in chapter 1? We've seen this, that the lampstands, he's pulling from Zechariah 4, the lampstands were representative of the churches. Jesus stood in the midst of the seven lampstands representing the churches, the seven churches that he just wrote to, to be a light and witness to the world. In Zechariah 4, what we have is Joshua, talking about the olive branches, and Zerubbabel. So Joshua was the high priest, Zerubbabel was the governor, and they represented the, the people of God in their priestly and royal ro uh, um, roles, which is what we are now in the New Testament. We are priests and kings. Third, the reference to rain and fire and turning water into blood, they're clearly references to Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were always associated with the law and the prophets, which is why in Jesus' transfiguration on that mountaintop in Matthew 17 and Mark 9, who's there but Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets testifying to the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ in his gospel message. So when we take all these together, 
the, the general identification of the two witnesses, as well as the specific, uh, calling them olive trees and lampstands, calling down fire, turning water to blood. What John is doing, he's simply pulling from all the material of the Old Testament. Men who bore witness to God, whether it was Joshua or Zerubbabel or Moses or Elijah, these men spoke for God and were his witnesses to the world. And according to Matthew 28, 19 to 20, that job has now been handed to the church. We are to be God's witnesses to the world. So what we see, literally, uh, we see in the text, this temple, this time period, these two witnesses, turns out to be all referring to the church in its protection that God will keep us in the period of time we have to do the job and the purpose we're called to fulfill, to be the witnesses to God, to a dying world that's in rebellion against him. So as we look, this apparently bizarre, fantastical section is simply saying, during this church age, where you and I are, the church will witness to the world. And we will suffer the world's hatred, but God will preserve, the, preserve us in remarkable ways. Now, with this interpretive lens in mind, let me wrap up by briefly applying what we're seeing here to us. Number one, guard will, God will guard us. See that 11, chapter 11, verse 1 through 2? In, in my daily Bible reading, um, we read the book of Daniel. And reading through chapter 3, you're familiar if you've been in the church for a while. It's that chapter where Nebuchadnezzar sets up the gold statue and his Daniel's friends, really great guys, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, say, we are not bowing down to this statue. This is a, a false god. Nebuchadnezzar loses his temper and calls him up here and says, either you bow now or I'm throwing you into the furnace. And I love what these young men say. This is what he says. I'm not sure if it was Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, but they say this. Nebuchadnezzar. Our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if not, I love that. Our God can do this. He doesn't have to. Doesn't matter. Either way, let it be known. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you set up. Friends, that's a biblical theme. God does not guarantee to deliver us from our trials. But he says, I'll deliver you in the midst of them. And that's exactly what we saw in Daniel chapter 3. That's exactly what Revelation is telling us about. That's exactly what Ezekiel was told by God. You are to do this whether or not they respond. It's going to be hard. You're sitting on scorpions. Did you catch that? Uh, that that's an unpleasant experience. He's saying, Ezekiel, what I'm calling you to is hard. But I will make you harder. And if Daniel 3 is not convincing... Listen to what Jesus says as he's praying for you and I. He's praying for his people in John chapter 17, verse 14 and 15. He says, Father, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world because I need them here. We're supposed to be witnesses. I'm not asking that you remove them from the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. If we're honest, sometimes you read that and you go, I can't, spiritual protection is nice, Jesus, but, but can I have physical protection? Can you, can you can per, per guarantee you're going to keep me from all kinds of things? Death, persecution, disease, plague, poverty, all that. Can you guarantee me that? Hmm, that's not what he's praying for. The question is, can you trust Jesus to know enough that he's praying correctly for you? 
Can we trust Jesus to know what really is important for us? Ray Burke, he, as I was studying and writing this, literally he sent me a text message and reminded me of a passage of scripture. Go to Romans chapter 8. I, I think maybe you'll read it a little differently after what I just said this morning as we open God's word. Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, starting at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. By the way, did not remember every church was told, be conquerors. How are we conquerors? By giving up our lives. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation. He's got it all covered. None of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he sealed his people. He's measured them out. He knows who they are. And their salvation is secure. He will not lose one, even though they can't be trampled over. But God will guard us where it counts. I hope that encourages you. I hope you realize if that's not where your values are as a Christian, you ask God to change your heart to make your values and your vision of safety and security in this world align with his. Secondly, God will empower us. This is a ch a verse, chapter 11, verse 4 through 6 of, of Revelation. The purpose of the vision of the two witnesses doing supernatural works wasn't to show us that, hey, one day you might be like a metahuman or something like that. And if, and if you're witnessing somebody and they don't like it, you're like, be gone. That's not what's going to happen. It is to show that God's supernatural power that was available to the prophets and his people of old to literally turn kingdoms upside down, that that power is still available. Those resources are the churches today as well. And I'll never forget. By the way, I'm going to run late. You probably figured that out. Uh, 16 years ago, I was in Romania. I was teaching some churches to do about evangelism. And one night we were having dinner, and I, I realized I was sitting at a table with a man who was probably the most dangerous man to, the, to America that you could imagine. I don't remember his name, I just remember his story. He was one of the lead scientists on the Soviet Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Project 20, 20 years earlier, so about right in the middle of the Cold War, towards the end of the Cold War, 1985. And somebody on his project or his team wasn't one of the other scientists, just some lower level somebody shared the gospel with him. Long story short, he repented of his sins, and he realized he didn't want to use his life building rockets, nuclear warheads, for the Soviet Union. And he walked away from it all and dedicated his life to preaching the gospel. Now, that's not burning fire from heaven, but that's pretty significant. In my 20s, I spent a lot of time um, working in Pomona, Covina, with gangbangers. That's just where God had called me. And we had been doing outreaches. We were to juvenile halls, prisons, university campuses, preaching the gospel. And one of our volunteers, we had dozens of volunteers at the height of our ministry. Big, burly guy, gangbanger. He makes Tyler Wildman look kind of small. Big guy, right? And I had asked him his testimony. He said one day, while he was out, and he, was, he was part of the La Puente Pairu, this young girl, 100 pound nothing, comes up to him and street witnessing, 
shares the gospel. And this guy, six foot four, 240 pounds, and some know-nothing, five-foot-tall, nothing young girl that weighs 100 pounds in his face, preaching Christ. He said he went home that night and recognized that all his fronting, he called it, all, all of his bravado was covering up cowardice. And he had witnessed true courage and ferocity in this 100-pound, five-foot-nothing girl confronting a six-foot-four, 240-pound gangbanger with the gospel. And he realized that's the kind of courage he needs but doesn't have. He just remembered Jesus, and the next morning he went down, I think it was a Methodist church, and gave his life to Christ. That's not turning water into blood, but that's power. That's power that is amazing. God will empower his people. That's what we're promised. And finally, God will bring us home. Look at chapter 11, verse, uh, verse 12. Chapter 11, verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, after the witnesses are raised from the dead, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched. Maybe you're more familiar with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Maybe you're thinking what Jesus promised in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. No matter what the world throws at God's people, he will bring them all home. All 144,000, that symbolic number that says that God knows every one of his people, and there is a lot of them. In our text, we conclude that we come up to the, the, the mystery of God being fulfilled, because right after this is the seventh trumpet. So what exactly is the mystery? What, what is the mystery that the seventh trumpet brings in that is being fulfilled? Is it that God's kingdom finally reigns? No. I mean, let's be honest. That's not a mystery. This is God. It is going to happen. That's not uncertain at all. So what is the mystery? The mystery is that mankind can be brought back into full, final fellowship with him. That man can dwell with God again. That's the mystery. That sinful, rebellious man forgiven and made family. That the creation recreated to be better than it was before. How in the world is that possible? That a pure, holy, loving God would be able to be in the presence of sinful, hateful, hurtful, harmful people like us, so full of our pride, so full of our self-righteousness, so full of our arrogance. By the way, if you don't think you're full of pride, self-righteousness, and arrogance, guess what? That's because your pride, your self-righteousness, and your arrogance is blinding you to it. That's just the reality. So how does this mystery come to pass? How does God include us in his kingdom of peace, light, and righteousness? The gospel. The gospel that proclaims our judgment and our salvation has been satisfied in the work of Christ on the cross, the pinnacle of the mystery. How does this happen? Christ 
He satisfied God's just judgment against sin and brings us our salvation in the work of Christ. That's the message that the world hates because before you can realize that the cross is something that's done for you, the message of salvation, you have to realize that the cross is something that's done by you, a message of judgment. It can't work any other way. When we look upon the cross, we have to see that dual reality that the cross in history testifies that I am a sinner, but it also testifies there is a Savior. And humanity refuses to admit their sin before God because we want to be God. But the cross says otherwise. And you have to get both messages. Because if you just look at the cross as your ticket to heaven, that, that, that that's your savior, and you don't realize your sin, you will be a just self-righteous, moralistic mm, jerk. But if you just look at the cross as it's a condemnation against your sin, you will just be self-loathing, full of guilt, and not what God intends. You must see in the cross that you are a savior with a greater, a sinner <laughs> with a greater savior. This is the message that the witnesses, God's witnesses, bring to the world, and this is why the world hates us. But this is why the world needs us to be his witnesses regardless, to not be afraid of what physical harm might come or what this world might do because God has saved us in Christ. That's why how we as Christians live matter. How we live individually, how we live as a church matters. That's why Christianity, it may be a personal thing, but it's not private. It is a corporate thing. Because God's not looking to save individuals. He's looking to save a people for his glory and their good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. Um, how much the Old Testament really helps us understand this book of Revelation. We don't have to create crazy new theologies to explain what's here. It's all in the Old Testament. Father, thank you that you have guaranteed that you're protecting us. Father, we pray that we would not just savor that protection, but recognize you have protected us for a purpose to go be your witnesses to this world. And Lord, though the world might come against us, you do not stand idly by, and we can trust in that. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, Lord. So we just pray, Lord, that you would give us courage. Help us to get away from low living, from not taking risks for the gospel. Be courageous, because the time is short. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.